Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. It's such an honor and privilege to be here today with you and to share God's Word with you today. Um, please mind my voice. I've been getting over a cold, so um, you might want to just shake my hand, not give me a hug later. Um, but it is such a privilege to be here. And, you know, um, in I realized that it's been two years since I last preached here at AIC and two and a half years since our family transitioned back to the States and something we have learned is um, something that's been kind of a theme this morning, and that is trusting in God's provision. And so I know that, uh, and not only learning to trust in his provision, but learning that he does provide. Uh, he provides for our needs exactly when we need them, what we need. And I know that's tr- going to be true for uh, Pastor Mike and his family as they transition back, and for you as a church family. Um, and so what a tremendous testimony we heard of God's provision for Henri and Joyce and their ministry of New Site Congo. That is just amazing, uh, such an astronomical amount that it sounds that God has provided. So we trust in God's provision and know that he provides for all of our needs. Um, although uh, physical needs and material needs and financial needs are important, uh, one of the biggest needs we have are, is a spiritual need. Uh, because of our sin, um, we are separated from a, an eternal holy God. And because when we sin, it uh, impacts and offends an eternal, holy, uh, infinite God, our sin deserves an infinite, eternal punishment. And so we're dependent on his provision to cover our sin. He did that on the cross, as we sang about, and the only way our sins can be covered is through his grace, by his declaration that our sins um, are no more and that we are declared holy. And so we're going to talk about God's grace today. Um, And I remember early on in my childhood learning how sin, disobedience, um, has uh, has undesirable consequences. When I was about seven or eight years old, um, I love to play a game called chess. Anybody like to play chess? <laughs> okay. Um, and so I learned it from my father, who was not an expert, but he was pretty good. And so um, when I was about seven or eight years old, we were playing chess together, and uh, I thought that I had beaten my father. I put my father in check, and I was about to catch her, capture his king, and I thought, oh, ho, ho, he's not going to get out of this one. And he looks at the board for a couple seconds, and then he takes my queen and he says, well, that didn't work out, did it? And I was so angry, I looked at him, and I said, oh, you beep, and I said a really bad word that I can't say in church, (laughs) something as bad as PK in Cantonese, but I don't even know what that means, I don't even know what that means, I've heard it's a very bad word, so I... (laughs) Just some context, I found out because when I worked with youth here in Hong Kong, in the States, we have acronyms for like missionary kid is an MK, pastor's kid is a PK, and they said, no, don't say that. So that's when I learned it was a bad word. Anyway, I say this word that I learned from an awesome 80s movie, Back to the Future. Um, So I didn't know what it meant. I just thought it was a not so bad word. And my dad was mortified. How could this word come out of little Daniel's mouth? So he was so angry, sent me to my room. I'm like, what? What did I say? What did I do? Um, and then he came in, and he was just, how could you say that? It was so awful. And that was the first time and the last time 
I ever got my mouth literally washed out with soap. He took a soap bar and scrubbed it on my tongue. It's, I, apparently that was supposed to wash away the dirty word. I don't know. Um, but I never said that word to my father again. Um, I learned that that was very bad. Um, that's what sin does. It has undesirable consequences, and ultimately we're respond, we are accountable to a holy God. And so we're dependent on and needing his provision of grace to forgive us of our sins. The fact is we all are sinners and we all need that forgiveness. And I want us to think about this morning, um, times in our life, you know, I gave kind of a lighthearted example of sin, but certainly as I've gone old, gotten older, I've sinned in other ways as well. And sometimes we have private sins. We have sins that no one knows about. And if people were to know about them, how would we feel? How would we feel? How would we respond if our indiscretions were somehow revealed to everyone? If, we came in, if you came into church and it was, well, today, so-and-so, we're going to look at his sins or her sins and it's broadcast on the screens, how would we respond? Well, most of us would probably respond with tremendous embarrassment, uh, guilt, shame. We would feel a sense of dishonor. We're dishonoring ourselves, our families. Um, it would just be horrible. Um, so we might respond to our sin with shame, guilt, dishonor, all of these things, embarrassments, humiliation. How might others respond if they knew the, the true nature of our hearts and the things we've done? Some people would respond with condemnation or judgment. Um, but the question I want us to think about today is how would and how does Jesus respond to our sin? Does he look upon us with dishonor and shame and guilt and judgment and condemnation like we and others might have? Or, how, or does he respond in a different way? So we're going to look at that question and try to answer that, hopefully, as we go through a somewhat familiar passage. We're going to look at a passage that's found in John chapter 8, um, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 11. And before we read this, I want to kind of set up the context of what's going on here. And this is a story that you may have heard before or somewhat familiar with. Um, But as we approach this section of Scripture, Jesus had just been teaching in uh, the temple courts. And as he was teaching, there were lots of discussions about who this man is. Who is Jesus? Um, Because his teaching was so compelling, some people thought he was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the promised Savior that the Old Testament prophesied about. So some people were wanting to follow him as that Messiah. Others were like, well, he seems like a good man. Maybe he's a prophet. I don't know about the Messiah. And others were like, well, he's from Galilee and nothing good comes from Galilee. So how could he be a prophet? So there was this huge debate over who Jesus was. And the religious leaders were getting really upset because some people were actually thinking he was the Christ, the Messiah, and they didn't like that. They didn't, want, they didn't want to lose their own power that they had in the community, in the religious community. So they wanted to find a way to kind of get Jesus. So um, everybody went home, and then we're told the next day they come back to the temple court. So that's where we pick up in John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. It says, At dawn, he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts 
where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, another part of the religious leaders, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So here is Jesus coming to sit, and he's teaching. People are listening to him to teach. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders barge in with a woman in tow, pulling her, dragging her into the temple, and say, Ah, teacher, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. What do you say? Now, this is pretty fascinating, pretty amazing um, when we think about this, um, the word caught here, we find out that this woman was caught. The original Greek word means to, to capture or apprehend or to seize. And so apparently the assumption here is that she was caught in this act of adultery and, and literally um, taken hold of and brought to the temple immediately after that. Now, just so there's no nothing lost in translation, adultery is... Um, having a sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse, who is not your husband or wife. And so here's this woman who apparently was caught in the act of doing this. So we don't know if the Pharisees, Pharisees, religious leaders, were walking by the house and said, knocked on the door, opened the door, hey, what's going on here? You know, or if they were hiding in the closet or under the bed, we don't know what's going on. But somehow they knew she was there with another man who wasn't her husband and they actually seized her. Now, we also know that this was not a false accusation. This wasn't a he said, she said. This wasn't a rumor. This was an act that was, uh, had witnesses, multiple witnesses. So today, this would be like if there were you know, video cameras that caught this happening. So there was no doubt that this woman committed adultery, that she was guilty because there were witnesses. Now, she's brought in front of uh, the temple courts, and uh, this would have been a very disrupting scene. Um, This would have been a a very sacred place where normally very sacred things happen, and to bring in a woman and burst in and and share this would have been amazing. It would be like on a Sunday morning if Pastor Mike is preaching and the elders bring in uh, a brother and say, um, well, stop the service. Look what Brother David did. He was doing this. And um, everything's interrupted, and they say, we have proof, and they show it on the screen, and everyone's talking about and then they ask, Pastor Mike, what do we do with David? Sorry, David, I'm just using that as a name. He didn't do anything. <laughs> I just saw him sitting in the back. That would be a disruption in our service. It would be like, whoa, every eye would be on David and on Pastor Mike, and what are they going to do about this? So here, here's this woman brought in in front of everyone, and just think about, even though she's guilty, we all know she's guilty, she did this, think about how humiliating this experience would be for her, how shameful she would feel, dishonoring herself, her family, her parents, everyone. And so here they bring this woman who was caught in the act, there was no doubt that she was guilty, bring her in front of Jesus, and they say this, they, they give a question to Jesus. They say, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, this is an interesting statement. Um, it is true that in the Old Testament, 
um, it did allow for the death penalty for adultery. However, um, the religious leaders actually add something that the text doesn't say. Uh, The text doesn't say how the execution should take place. Um, So they they add the fact that she should be stoned to death. The other thing that's interesting is that the Old Testament law, uh, as it did call for the death penalty, it actually called for the death penalty of both the man and the woman, the woman and the man. So that raises the biggest question here. Uh, Kind of the elephant in the room is you have this woman, but where's the man? Where's the man? If these religious leaders were serious about judging sin and for justice to be served, they would have brought the man too. So where is the man? Now, we don't know exactly. The text doesn't say, so it's pure speculation. But it seems to me that it makes the most sense that this was um, somewhat of a setup, uh, something that we would call entrapment today. Um, And in other words, that the man was in on it. Okay, that this was all a setup to catch this woman um, and that the man was part of this plan. So I would assume that they probably paid this man to arrange a rendezvous to meet with this woman um, because the man would have been guilty too. If, if she was committing adultery, that wasn't her husband, then she wasn't his wife, so he would have been guilty too. So they probably paid him money um, and assured him that he would not, um, it, he, this wouldn't be made public Uh, on his account. So it seems to make the most sense. Otherwise, um, how would they know the exact place, time, location, all of this um, to be able to catch this woman? So more than likely, uh, the man was uh, part of this uh, elaborate plan to set up this woman. And really we see that um, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, don't really care even about what this woman did. They don't even really care about the fact that she committed adultery. Their real motive was to to get Jesus, to trap Jesus. And in fact, that's what they say in the next verse. Um, That's what it says in the next verse, verse 6. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, how would this question be a trap for Jesus? Here's this woman caught in adultery. They say the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? Well, if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't do that, that seems a little harsh, let's forgive the woman, Um, then they could accuse him of being against Jewish law, uh, being against specifically the law of Moses. And certainly, um, the Messiah wouldn't be opposed to the law of Moses. So if he would have said no, they would have a basis to say, see, he doesn't even follow the Mosaic law. He doesn't even follow our laws. How can he be the one to be the Messiah? So if he says no, they could accuse him of being in violation of Jewish law. If he says yes, they could accuse him of being in violation of Roman law. At this time, the Jews were ruled by the Romans, and according to Roman law, only the Roman governing authorities could authorize an execution. So if he would have said yes, that's what the, the Mosaic law says, she should be put to death, so go ahead and do it then they would have probably gladly put her to death. They would have gladly stoned her. And then they could accuse him um, when the Roman authorities came, what's going on? They could say, it's this man, Jesus. He's the one who incited us to do this. So they could have accused him of violating Roman law by inciting mob violence, so to speak, that led to an unauthorized execution. So whether he says yes or no, they could accuse him of violating 
uh, a law. So how does Jesus respond to their trap, to their question? Well, it's very interesting how he responds. It says, after uh, they use this question as a trap, it says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. How does Jesus respond? He doesn't. He just bends down and starts to write on the ground. Now, what's really um, boggled the minds of lots of Christians and theologians and scholars is the burning question, what did Jesus write on the ground? Um, I've read, lots, read and heard lots of theories, which are all speculation, all theories, because the text doesn't say. Um, some have theorized, again, just a theory, uh, which I don't believe to be true, but just a theory. Some have said that maybe Jesus was writing down of all the accusers, the religious leaders, he was writing name, their, some of their names who, who had also committed adultery to kind of shame them to say, hey, you're no better than this woman. Um, others have said, well, maybe he was writing down, uh, name, or, um, writing down other sins that the, the accusers had, um, had committed. Maybe he wrote down greed or lust or lying or theft or whatever, to, to, again, try to shame them into saying, you're no better than this woman. Well, the fact is, we don't know what Jesus wrote. Um, but I can tell you the correct answer to what did Jesus write. That is, we don't know. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. Because that's not the point. The point is, the religious leaders asked him a pointed question, and what does he not do? He doesn't answer them. He doesn't answer them. So, really, the fact that he's writing on the ground is just, I'm ignoring you. It's kind of like when you ask your teenager or college student how their day went, and they're just texting on their phone. Uh-huh, yeah. That never happens, though, right? I'm just ignoring. He's just ignoring them, as if their question is irrelevant, um, not important. And the reason why I believe that one is uh, there is a translation that says um, that adds the words um, as if he heard them not. Now, whether that was part of the original, I, I don't know, but it does give the implication that it's as if he's just ignoring them. And then in verse seven, it says, "When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them." So they kept questioning him. So, in other words, that shows to me that he's just ignoring them, and they're like, "Jesus, what do you say?" What are you going to say? How are you going to respond? Jesus, we're asking you. And they needed him to answer. They needed him to answer so they could trap him and uh, get rid of him. So he finally speaks up after they keep on questioning him. It says he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So that's probably the famous part that you've heard before. He's without sin, cast the first stone, something like that. Now, some people, when they've heard this, um, they've been a little confused and thought that Jesus was adding something to the Old Testament law. Um, As if that Jesus was saying, you have to be perfect in order to bring an accusation to someone or against someone. Um, Well, Jesus isn't saying, he's not saying that you have to be perfect in order for justice to be carried out. 
Um, that would be impossible. Nobody on earth is perfect, except for Jesus, was the only one who ever lived a sinless life. So he can't be and isn't saying that you have to be perfect in order to bring an accusation. But Jesus is alluding to something that's not explicitly said in the Old Testament law, but it is implied, and that is um, for witnesses of a crime or witnesses of a sinful act, um, it implies that the witnesses need to be free from accusation themselves, um, that the witnesses need to have integrity, um, at least regarding the incident that happened, that they have to be trustworthy, excuse me, trustworthy witnesses. Otherwise, um, it would invalidate their, their testimony. They wouldn't be reliable witnesses if they were known to have lacking in integrity. So Jesus is just reiterating something that the Old Testament law implied was that, well, if you're going to accuse someone, you have to have pure motives yourself. So basically what Jesus is saying is, well, I guess this could be permissible if you have pure motives in your heart. If you are um, not guilty of anything in this matter, if you don't have ill motives or uh, ulterior motives or deceit or anything in this matter, then go ahead and do it. Now, this is very interesting um, in Jesus' response. And again, he just bends down and starts writing on the ground. So what he's effectively done in his ingenious response is he's effectively tossed the question of what to do back on their shoulders, back into their hands. So they asked him, what do we do? The law says this. And now he's placed it in their hands to say, well, if any of you is without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. So now they have a choice to make. If they decide not to do it, well, they'll look foolish because they're the ones who said the Mosaic law says she should be put to death by stoning. So if they don't do it, then they'll look like they don't really believe in the Old Testament law. And if they go ahead and do this, well, then they'll be guilty of kind of mob violence and in violation of Roman law. So now the trap they set for Jesus has now backfired on themselves, and now they're trapped. So that's what's ingenious about Jesus' response here. So what do they do? Well, it says in verse 9, At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Well, instead of... um, Instead of violating either law, and instead of losing face, because they would have lost a lot of face, um, they decided to just leave. They decided to just go. Now, it's really interesting why it says the older ones first. Uh, We're not sure exactly why, um, but culturally it would make a lot of sense. This was a culture very similar to Hong Kong Chinese culture where there was a lot of reverence and respect for elders, for those who were older in the community. And so whatever the elders did... Uh, everyone had to follow suit. So as Jesus says this, the one without sin, you cast the first stone, all the younger ones were looking and waiting. What are the older ones going to do? And whatever the older ones did, they had to follow suit. And so um, the older ones, we're not sure exactly why. One translation says because of their conscience, which could mean that they, they felt guilty and realized, okay, what we're doing is wrong. Or it could be, that they realized we're trapped. We're trapped. And the only way to get out of this to save our own face is to just leave the situation, to just go. 
And so they felt like that was the only thing to do. So as they started to leave, the younger ones had no choice but to follow suit. And so here is this woman who's probably been wondering, is my life at stake here? Was I going to be killed? And, he, and it seemingly was in the hands of this man, Jesus. If he said, yes, go ahead, I could have been killed. And what's fascinating is here she is alone now in front of Jesus. And remember his um, standard for who could cast the first stone? It says, he who is without sin or the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. None of the accusers met that requirement because they all had guilty motives themselves. But now she's in front of the one person who meets that requirement, who could be the one to condemn her to death. Not only because he's sinless, but he is God, the holy and eternal God, the judge of the entire universe. Now what is he going to do? How is he going to respond to this woman's sin? Well, in verse 10, it says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So how does Jesus respond to this woman's sin? He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't judge her. He offers her grace and forgiveness. And that's how Jesus responds when we sin. We might feel guilt, shame, dishonor, humiliation. Others might view us with uh, judgment, condemnation, but Jesus responds with grace and forgiveness. Now something that some people have misunderstood here is when Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin, um, as if that Jesus was letting her off light that Jesus was saying, that's okay. You know, those guys were way too uptight. You need to just live your life how you want, do what you want, and you just go and do however you want, live how you want. It's okay. Don't let anyone tell you it's wrong. I forgive you. Almost as if to say you can live however you want, and that's not what Jesus was saying. In fact, this command, which is a command, was a little harsh. Um, it was acknowledging that what she was doing, her lifestyle was sinful, that it was wrong, that it was offensive to him as the holy God of the universe. And he challenges her to not do it again. So instead of saying, oh, don't worry about it, he's saying, that was sin, don't do it again. So his grace and forgiveness wasn't letting her off light, it was also challenging her to a better way, to a life of holiness that he calls us to. And so when it comes to sin, uh, we, we can take the same view that Jesus had, that it does offend a holy God, and yet we offer grace and forgiveness to the person to help them change their life and to change their heart. And so here this woman has experienced God's wonderful, amazing, undeserved grace and forgiveness. Um, when I was around that same age, seven or eight years old, um, I too... Uh, for the first time, uh, not only experienced the, un- uh, um, the not-so-pleasurable consequences of sin, but also um, grace and forgiveness for my sin. Um, I believe I shared this story once before, but at risk of doubling up, I'll do it again, repeating myself. Um, 
When our family attended our, our church, um, we, still, we had a choir at that time, and whenever the choir sang, the whole choir would sit up in its own section behind the pastor for the whole service. And so um, we would sit with, my brother and I would sit with uh, some friends of our, some f- family friends who was called the Rice family. Um, and so we sat with Mr. Rice. I think his wife was in the choir. He must not have been able to sing well or something, but... Mr. Rice was there, and he had two or three boys of his own that my brother and I sat with. Well, we had Sunday school before the church service, and uh, we were given bookmarks with Bible verses on it. And um, for whatever reason, the Sunday school teacher thought it would be a good idea to laminate those in plastic and to give those to seven, eight-year-old boys. And what would a seven or eight-year-old boy do with a plastic bookmark? We would hit each other with it. (laughs) We would blow on it and make noises. You know, we would um, do all kinds of things. We, we, it, actually, if we swung it, it would go, wah, 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 you know. So we're making all these noises, being boys. And uh, during the church service, and Mr. Rice, he had so much patience. He would just lean over every once in a while and be like, Daniel, can you be quiet, please? Um, and i just look at him like, whatever, you're not my dad. And so... Um, you know, I just kept going on, and I'd make more noise. And then finally, he reached over and put his hand on my arm, and he said, Daniel, you need to please be quiet. Now, here I am looking at this, this guy, and um, I thought, you know what? He's not my dad. He can't really tell me what to do. So I mustered up all my strength, and I looked at him like the tough guy I was, <laughs> all 50 pounds of me or whatever, And I pointed my finger into his face. I remember that. And I said, you can't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. And I thought, oh, I should hold him off. And then I just kept on playing and having fun and making noise. And so I felt kind of good about myself, you know. I'm like, yeah, I can can take on adults, you know. Um, So after that, I honestly didn't even think about it. Um, The church service went on. We went... Um, you know, we started to leave, and we went out to the car with my family, and we were sitting there, and my dad started the car, and, um, you know, I just was talking to my brother, and I noticed we were sitting there in the car for a little bit longer, and my mom and dad were talking for several minutes, and then my dad leans over the, the car, and he looks back, and he says, Daniel, I talked to Mr. Rice today. <laughs> I was like, oh, I started to lean back in my seat. I'm like, so, he told you how good I was during the service? Um, and he's like, no, actually, he told me what you said to him, and you're in big trouble for that. I'm like, oh boy, is it going to be soap in my mouth again? What is it going to be? Um, so I thought, okay, what? all right, I can get a spanking, that's fine, because it didn't hurt anymore by that time. And then I'm like, um, oh, maybe I'll you know, be grounded from Nintendo or TV for a week, okay. And so my dad says, now what I want you to do is I want you to think about what you're going to say to Mr. Rice when we go over to his house this afternoon. I'm like, I got to go meet this guy and talk to his face and say, I'm sorry, no, no, here's my belt. You can use my belt to spank me. I'm like, I'll unplug my Nintendo. I'll I'll give it to charity or whatever. I don't know. I was like, anything. That was like the worst punishment for a seven-year-old. I was like, that's going to be so humiliating. And he's just going to lecture me of, you know, you shouldn't talk that way and, you know, whatever. So it was so horrible, and I was, it was, I was dreading it. Um, and I remember the whole afternoon just thinking, is there any other way? And so we went to 
Mr. Rice's house after lunch, and we walk up to his door, and we knock on the door, and he comes to the door, and he says, oh, hi, Tom. That's my dad's name. Hi, Tom. Hi, Daniel. How's it going? My dad says, well, Daniel has something he'd like to say to you. I look at my dad, and I'm like, no, I don't. No. <laughs> so he nudges me on the shoulder, and I say, yeah, I'm sorry for what I said. And then my dad nudges me again and says, look, look at him in the face and tell him you're sorry for what you did. And I looked at his face, and I said, I'm sorry for what I said. I shouldn't have said that. Please forgive me. And then I kind of closed my eyes, and I was waiting for it. I was waiting for him to just lay into me and give me the biggest lecture, and how could you say that? But then he says, oh, that's okay, don't worry. My boys are playing Legos in the back if you want to go play with them. Then I open my eyes and I'm like, this is an evil joke, isn't it? To taunt me with having fun when I'm supposed to get in trouble. And I look at my dad and he's like, yeah, if you want to go, go ahead. I'm like, really? I can go play? And I'm like, yeah. Playing is my punishment? Yeah, go ahead. So I go and I play Legos and... All I remember from the rest of that day was having one of the funnest days of that year playing Legos with my friends. And it was one of the first times I remember that experience of grace, what grace is. It's undeserved. What I deserved was a big punishment. I probably deserved a big lecture and lots of spankings probably. Um, But I received fun and pleasure and enjoyment in a way that I didn't deserve. And so that same grace that I received from Mr. Rice was the same grace that Jesus gave this woman, and it's the same grace that Jesus is offering you for your own life. I don't know um, your, your heart and your life and what you've done, but all of us have sinned in various ways in our lives, and maybe you can think of something recently that you need grace and forgiveness for. Maybe this past week you said something that you regretted or wasn't right. Maybe you've had a thought or attitude that wasn't right. Maybe you did something that you know was not right. Um, And maybe it's been in this past year. Maybe it's been years ago. You've been hiding a sin from others and even from God, supposedly. You think you can hide it from Him because you just feel so ashamed of what you've done. And what I want to offer you this morning is a chance to come to Jesus, to reveal that to Him. He already knows but to bring that to him and to receive his forgiveness. Maybe there's something that you feel like, I can't, I was so bad, I can't forgive myself. Or if others only knew, they would, they would not think of me in the same way. You can come to Jesus for that forgiveness. And so many of you can relate to that and need that and will give an opportunity in a moment to receive that forgiveness. Others of you, as you hear this story, If you're honest, maybe you can relate more to the the Pharisees and religious leaders. Maybe your response is to be able to, maybe you're easily uh, point out the sin in others. Maybe you have a critical spirit or a judgmental or um, condemning spirit where you see things in other people and you easily and readily point out and think, how could they do that? And maybe that's something that you need to, receive God's forgiveness for because the fact of the matter is the religious leaders needed to receive Jesus's grace and forgiveness as much as this woman did and so maybe that's something that you need to repent of and receive God's forgiveness for and then for others um, maybe you know people in your life who 
around you who have sinned, that you need to be like Jesus and offer that forgiveness and grace in your own life. So let's just take a a few moments here to receive God's grace and forgiveness uh, in whatever way you need. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and come before him. And I'll ask that you do something if you want. You don't have to. But I always feel that a physical representation of our hearts is always uh, good and a reminder for us. But if you're someone who needs to receive God's grace or forgiveness in your own life for something recent or even from the distant past, um, just hold out your arms with your palms up, your hands up, kind of in a receiving posture as if you're receiving a gift, you're receiving something. And I want you to just think about and ask for Jesus' forgiveness and to receive his grace. And I'll just say a, a simple prayer here as we close out this portion of the service. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you for how your word encourages us, how it challenges us, and how it draws us closer to you. And Lord, as we hear this story of this woman who was caught in adultery and her sin was brought in front of everyone, we can only imagine how shameful and embarrassed and um, humiliated she may have felt. And Lord, others were, were pointing out her sin in judgment and condemnation. And we see how you responded with such undeserved grace and forgiveness. And Lord, I want you to search each and every one of our hearts as you know them. And Lord, you know the areas in our life where we have sinned and fallen short. And Lord, we ask for your grace and forgiveness. We ask that you would come in and purify our hearts, that you would change us, and that you would give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to do what you asked this woman to do, which is to go and sin no more. Lord, we know we won't be perfect, but Lord, we ask that you would help to shape us so that we um, draw closer to your holiness and strive to live a holy life. And when we do mess up, when we do sin, we would readily come to you for grace and, and forgiveness, Lord. So Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and that you would forgive us for the areas that we need forgiving. Lord, forgive us for times when we've been judgmental or critical of others, where we've been condemning of others, rather than having a heart of compassion and forgiveness. And Lord, help us to readily give the same grace and forgiveness you give us, that we would readily give that to others who need it. So Lord, we just want to honor you with our lives, with how we live today, throughout this week, and in this coming year. So may you work in us in a special way, and that you would draw us closer to you, so we can bring honor and glory to your name wherever we go. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.